0: From Fierce Healthcare, I'm Teresa Carey, and this is Podnosis. On March 29th, my colleague, Fraser Kansteiner, reported a major breakthrough for the opioid crisis. The FDA approved the first over-the-counter naloxone product. Not long after that, Fraser launched an investigation into what that means for the opioid epidemic. And, well, what started as one interview turned into a six-part series between Podnosis and our sister podcast, The Top Line. Today, we're going to kick off that series with Frasier, right now. My husband is just fiddling with papers. He's going to be gone in just a second. Uh.
1: He's not going to be playing the guitar (laughs) in the corner. Not going to be wailing on the lava lamp.
2: Even the lava lamp.
0: (laughs) All right, uh, let's get started. I'm excited about this one. Frazier, the next segment we're about to hear was first released on an episode of Podnosis about a month ago. Staff writer Annie Berkey spoke with attorney Jane Conroy about what it takes to prosecute those involved in overprescribing opioids for pain management. They talked about the $10 billion agreement to settle opioid cases that was reached with CVS and Walgreens. And that money could help communities. It could help these communities provide assistance to people struggling with opioids, But you've also been covering some interesting progress for the opioid crisis since that conversation. Can you tell us about Narcan and what this means for opioid addiction?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Teresa. So I've been doing a lot of work on Narcan specifically, which is the nasal spray formulation of naloxone, which is used to reverse opioid overdoses. It's kind of a a rescue treatment for people that are actively using opioids. Now, going to your point about the settlements, a lot of that money is specifically going to go towards giving communities access to Narcan. What we've been covering separately is Narcan recently was approved for over-the-counter use by the FDA. The FDA specifically approved one dosage form of emergence Narcan uh, for over-the-counter use. Previously, it could only be bought with a prescription. Uh, But this may just kind of be the beginning of of a wider trend of having over-the-counter naloxone products approved.
0: Fraser, you spent some time really digging into this for some extensive reporting you did for the top line and Fierce Pharma. What sense did you get about what kind of impact the -the over-the-counter approval of Narcan could mean for opioid addiction?
1: I think across the board. There was enthusiasm and excitement over this decision. It, it's essentially uh, a decision that's been uh, a long time in the waiting. The FDA specifically has has telegraphed that they wanted over-the-counter Narcan to be approved for a long time, and it was really a matter of getting drug makers to jump on board and, and jump through the hoops necessary to get those approvals. Whether in the case of Narcan and Immersion, they had to do actions to amend their existing approvals, or when it comes to companies like Harm Reduction Therapeutics, which is actually a nonprofit, uh, that company is specifically angling to get its Narcan product approved over-the-counter from the get-go. Now, despite this optimism, there's there's a lot of uncertainties that persist around this approval and, and whether it will really move the needle on the opioid use disorder epidemic in the U.S., Uh, One of the main barriers that could persist is pricing. We don't know yet what emergent is going to charge for its drug, and the prescription version of Narcan is already pretty expensive. It can cost over $100, depending on where you are in the U.S. The other thing that is really important is education. So knowing how to recognize an opioid overdose when you see one, and also knowing how to properly dispense Narcan. The good news is that, that Narcan itself, again, is a nasal spray, and it's about as simple as using an allergy nasal spray. Um, and Something else that I think a lot of people might have concerns about if they're not familiar with opioids or opioid use disorder is that Narcan itself is, is non-narcotic, and it's not dangerous to use on someone. So if you're in doubt, you can use Narcan. You can administer it to a person who is having some sort of event. If you think it's an opioid overdose, it can't hurt. But if it's not, it's not going to hurt them. It's not going to harm them. Um, I think the, the other biggest note that, that came from my discussions with, with several different experts was that this is a really big step when it comes to reducing stigma around the drug. This decision could potentially allow Narcan to be sold at places like gas stations, uh, other convenience stores, even vending machines potentially. And the idea that I heard from a lot of these experts is really everyone should be familiar with Narcan and everyone should have Narcan on their person if possible, because we're all touched by the opioid epidemic in one way or another, whether we know it or not.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Frazier. And now we're going to hear from our colleague, Annie Berkey, when she spoke with Attorney Jane Conroy.
3: Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, As of yours, healthcare, really excited to chat.
4: Thank you. I am too.
3: Well, so I think a good place to start is um, your legal strategy. You were directing blame towards chain pharmacies for not providing tools for pharmacists to determine whether a prescription was legitimate. So if we were to zoom in on the opioid epidemic, one of the examples of the tools would be like requiring Walgreens pharmacists to check whether the same patient had recently filled the same prescription at other Walgreens. Why do you think these security checks had not been used by chain pharmacies?
4: Well, mostly in my opinion, those are business decisions. And it takes time for a pharmacist to not only log into a database and search not only his or her own store for that patient's name or that prescription number or that prescribing physician, but they need to search other stores. And most states have now initiated PDMPs, which are a type of database, a state database you can go into and see in controlled substances what a patient might be receiving from other pharmacies. But all of those steps take time, and it takes even more time for the pharmacist to make inputs into a database about, for example, refusing to fill a prescription or being suspicious about a prescription or about the condition of the patient who's getting the prescription so from where i stand those are business decisions and that's the and that's the sort of evidence that we have collected with the chain pharmacies what you know why don't they implement certain procedures and what are the roadblocks to those procedures
3: yeah, and I think speaking with Reuters, you talked about the magic and wonder of what was revealed in the Ohio case, which are two words that I have not often heard associated with tort law. Um, so I have two questions there, but I'll start with the fun one first. For those of us lay laypeople, um, can you walk us through that magic?
4: Sure. Well, in order to really understand the magic, you need to appreciate how this case even came to be. Many lawyers, myself included, filed lawsuits in several different federal courts around the country representing, and this was a little bit new to us, counties and cities, because it was counties and cities that were experiencing just the the, the opioid epidemic right at the grassroots level. So we filed in federal court, and then there's a procedure in federal court that one judge among all of the federal judges in all of the 50 states gets appointed to oversee the litigation, even if it's, you know, a New Hampshire county. It went to Judge Polster in Ohio, and he was what we call the multi-district litigation judge. So that initially became one of the magic things, that we suddenly had one place that we could begin to develop the evidence and see what was happening because there's a there's a pattern here among all of the defendants and throughout the and throughout the country. Judge Polster had defendants who were manufacturers of opioids, distributors of opioids, and dispensers like the chain pharmacies. So he had a big job. Once you have a court, you can then begin to request information that I just couldn't. I couldn't just ask you know, Purdue Pharma, hey, can you send me your sales records? Mm-hmm. But once you get a court involved, then you can sta- start to have that back and forth. So that was part of the magic that we experienced, getting it in one place. So we see this this ripple
3: effect um, of starting with manufacturers and distributors, then moving to the pharmacies. Um where is the ripple effect of that magic and wonder today? I kn- know you're working on a case related to advertisements. Is that the next stage of litigation in the the opioid epidemic?
4: That maybe that was really started just about the same time. It just has a little bit of a different focus that that involves companies like McKinsey that assist manufacturers, distributors or uh, dispensers in any kind of healthcare environment on how to promote their products. So that's that's a little bit um, that's related, but I'm not sure I would call that the ripple effect quite so much as I would say that as we developed information about the manufacturers and then about the distributors and how they did not really conform or follow the Controlled Substances Act The more information and evidence we collected, the more we began to understand what was happening right at ground zero, which is where the pharmacist was passing the pill bottle to the patient. And we knew this was not a pharmacist problem. That's never the way it it looks. Mm -hmm. But we did believe that the procedures in place, the protocols in place at these chain pharmacies we're not protecting the public. And I think that's where a little bit of the magic or wonder happened and the ripple effect when we began to understand, wow, that's the last line of defense and it's it's a sieve. It's mm-hmm. completely unprotected.
3: Yeah. And I think that that brings things from this like 10,000 foot legal view down to ground zero, as you're calling it. Um, we have now seen settlements in the billions of dollars. What will those settlements mean for the patients and families who are most affected by the epidemic?
4: Well, what we learned, we do represent municipalities, counties, and cities. So what we don't represent are individuals. Those are tragic cases, and it's true that in many instances, they may have a cause of action. But the approach that we took was to represent and look represent cities and counties and look forward to how to try to control and treat this epidemic and we believed that if this money that's being uh, that's we're receiving through the settlements that's going directly to states and counties and cities and it has significant restrictions on it it has to be used to a, The legal term is abate the public nuisance, which Mm -hmm. is the opioid epidemic. So that money has to be used for rehabilitation, for medical education, for helping with additional Narcan purchases to um, counteract an overdose, to assist in getting more emergency vehicles on the road or more emergency EMTs employed. It also will fund more studies about how Mm -hmm. to deal with addiction and how best to treat addiction. There's some flexibility with respect to how the money can be used and there's flexibility across the country about how each entity, each subdivision, each state will focus, where they're going to put their focus, depending on where their problem is. And that's, that's very novel and very new as well. Do you think that's a step forward? It certainly is a step forward, and in fact, one of the remarkable things about the settlement, in the in the context of a legal um, case, we typically represent a client, and we seek justice for that client, and we seek some sort of monetary damage for that client. We all recognize the lawyers on the plaintiff side that even if a county didn't sue and was not represented by a lawyer. That county had to be part of the solution of the epidemic. Mm. So when we settled, we made the decision that money would go to a county or a city or a state, whether they sued or not, because what would not solve this problem is if we had, you know, your own county working crazy hard to deal with the epidemic in the county next door not doing anything at all because they wouldn't have the funds to do Mm -hmm. it or wouldn't have the setup to do it. So that that was a very novel way for us to approach a settlement, to be able to spread it to people who sued as well as people who didn't. I will say this about the epidemic itself. It's nothing that we don't all recognize in our hearts, but there are no, this is not a political issue. This is not an economic issue. Everyone has been touched by this epidemic, no matter where they are in their life, regardless of their age, could be a family member, could be themselves, and it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, race doesn't matter, it, is, it impacts everyone.
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you put um, there are these guardrails, but also within those guardrails, do what you think is best. On the other side is saying like across the board, Walgreens tends to have the same policies within different states. So how are those policies going to change? Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, how are their practices changing? I know you mentioned a little bit earlier um, about how systems within their computers are changing. Are there other ways that you found especially notable?
4: that's a big fight. That is something, as a private lawyer, we can recover damages for our clients. But the states, in particular the attorney generals and the courts, can impose injunctive relief on these chain pharmacies and others to change their practices. You know, I don't have the ability to do that, but an attorney general does. And so we have sort of shined a light on the types of procedures that are in place and how they have to change.
3: I believe you're also working on a case alleging that social media platforms encourage addictive behavior in adolescence. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah. And recently the CDC recommended that children not use social media until they are 16 years old. To provide context, I was introduced to social media when I was 12 in 2004. So if these developments speak to the old maxim that technology goes first and the law follows, is technology now going much
4: faster than the law? Um, yes, and the law will catch up, and that's you know, typically what we see happen. But you know, it's a very interesting thing in particular with social media. What we're focusing on is um, the targeting of individuals who are already identified as being vulnerable to addiction. And the technology is able to do that. I don't think we're going to hold kids back until they're 16 from looking at social media. I don't think that's going to happen. It's a nice idea, but, you know, seems a little impossible to me. But what I think we can do is shed some light, develop the evidence and show that companies are targeting a vulnerable population that they themselves are identifying for business reasons, because those are the individuals who are going to buy the products or land on a site that entices them to buy a product. And so it never changes. It's profits over safety, no matter what we're talking about, that's what fueled the opioid epidemic. Frankly, that's what's behind the social media case. And from someone in my position, a lawyer, what do we do to unearth that? Look, journalists like yourself, you find, you, you push the envelope, you try to find and shed light on these issues and show these issues and make them visible. And then I sort of consider that's passed on to the lawyers to figure out, okay, is there a legal theory that will promote that visibility? How do we seek accountability in the sphere that we work in, which is the legal world?
3: Well, I think that's a wonderful way to end things. Thank you, Jane, so much for taking the time to speak with us, and we hope to hear from you again soon.
4: Sure, I'm always thinking about this stuff, so anytime.
0: That was Annie Berkey with attorney Jane Conroy. And if you want to hear more from Fraser on the Narcan special series, tune into The Top Line this Friday at 6 a.m. The Top Line. The United States has a national security policy for defense against foreign man-made attacks. But what if the attack doesn't directly come from a human, but a virus like COVID-19, whose origins are still being investigated, Or perhaps an attack could come from a bacteria. Are we ready for that? Many antibiotics that we've used to fight bacteria don't work anymore. Bacteria have an evolutionary head start on humans on the order of millions of years. They know how to survive, and they evolve to become resistant to our antibiotics. Some are superbugs, resistant to several types of antibiotics, Dr. Lori Hicks is the director of the Office of Antibiotic Stewardship at the CDC. She recently talked to Fierce Healthcare's Frank Diamond about antibiotic resistance and how and why we need to shore up antimicrobial stewardship programs. Here they are.
5: Dr. Lori Hicks, thanks so much for joining us here at Podnosis. Lori, you co-authored a research letter in February in JAMA Health Forum that described how antibiotics were misused during a COVID-19 pandemic. You wrote that in the early months before the vaccines, providers were just desperate and threw everything they could at the problem, even though antibiotics don't work against viruses. Then they thought antibiotics would help against secondary infections. But as you stated, COVID-19 rarely caused such infections. So what has the CDC learned from that experience?
2: Well, thanks for having me, Frank. And thanks also for being willing to cover this topic. What I think we learned is that when, so, when a clinician or when a healthcare provider is desperate for a solution, they will often turn to antibiotics as a what we consider a placebo. There are actually scientific publications showing that antibiotics are often used when clinicians feel the need to do something but don't have any good solutions. So um, we actually have known that antibiotics don't treat viral infections since they began, since we began starting to use them. Um, that's a fact we all learn in the early days of medical nursing or pharmacy school, and yet we often use antibiotics uh in healthcare when they're not needed. We also learned that it doesn't take much to lead to rampant antibiotic use. So there was one poor quality publication that led to a lot of robust media attention. And there was public promotion of that article. And it listed azithromycin, one of an antibiotic, as a solution. And public figures latched onto it as a solution. And then clinicians were really trying to find an option that would work to treat their patients. And I have to say I give clinicians a lot of grace during those early days when we didn't have vaccines or effective treatments for COVID-19. So that's not to say that we should do this again. What I consider problematic is that azithromycin is still being commonly and inappropriately used in patients who have COVID-19. So we really need to work to make sure that that practice doesn't continue.
5: Now, um, before the pandemic, the CDC did have some success against antibiotic overprescribing. Between 2012 and 2017, deaths from antimicrobial resistance fell by 18% overall and nearly 30% in hospitals. But then COVID set us back. Hospitals saw an increase in both infection rates and death rates caused by infection by 15% in 2020. Uh, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky wrote that these setbacks need to be corrected and that public health systems must be able to fight multiple threats simultaneously. How can health systems meet this challenge, you think?
2: So I I think your point is extremely important that not only were we dealing with a pandemic due to a virus, but we've also been dealing with this threat that is a much slower moving and insidious uh, threat called antibiotic resistance. And One of the most important factors leading to antibiotic resistance is antibiotic use. Both antibiotic use that is appropriate and antibiotic use that is inappropriate leads to antibiotic resistance. Another big factor during the pandemic that I think was a really significant challenge, especially for hospitals and nursing homes, was that during the time of the pandemic, it really stretched resources so thin that efforts to prevent infections were were much more challenging. And so not only were resources to monitor antibiotic prescribing threatened, but also resources to work to prevent infections in patients who were in hospitals and nursing homes were also threatened. And those resources were often diverted to um, to other activities to address the pandemic needs. So I think one of the things we need to do is make sure that in the normal times, even during uh, non-COVID times, we had staffing challenges with both our antibiotic stewardship programs, the programs that work to improve antibiotic use, and our infection prevention programs. And what we really need to do is make sure that we have adequate staffing during normal times and also prepare and plan for what that needs to look like during a pandemic.
5: You wrote that many pharmacists and physicians who usually were responsible for antibiotic stewardship had skills that were used for other roles during the pandemic response. Um, So how, you just mentioned that that has to be corrected. What would be one way of correcting it? How much should your average, I don't know what you would call an average healthcare worker, healthcare employee, know about the basics of antimicrobial stewardship?
2: Well, I think what you're pointing out, Frank, is that there's opportunity to educate all healthcare professionals about improving antibiotic use and I consider anyone who works in healthcare or anyone who takes antibiotics for that matter an antibiotic steward. So we do really need to work to educate individuals who work in healthcare, but also the general public about the importance of improving antibiotic use. We are working on this. Um, we know that when patients expect antibiotics, doctors are more, much more likely to prescribe them. So that is. Um, why we also need to tackle this from the the patient perspective. We actually also need to better characterize what kinds of resources and person time needs to be dedicated to doing these activities to improve antibiotic use. And as I mentioned, many stewardship programs were not staffed adequately prior to the pandemic. Um, to really handle the volume of work that they would need to do during the pandemic. Well,
5: that really does segue into my next question. Um, Hand hygiene. Um, This seems like such an easy way to protect patients from bacterial infection. And yet hand hygiene compliance, as you well know, has remained stubbornly low for decades. For one thing, a lot of hospitals don't seem to even monitor hand hygiene, uh, an article in Landsat, uh Infectious Diseases said that healthcare workers comply with CDC hand hygiene protocols about 40% to 50% of the time. That are, that are not; Those are not great rates. Again, this has been a problem for decades, which kind of blows my mind because you think it's an easy thing to, to address. Now, there's some new technology out there that might electronically monitor hand hygiene compliance. Do you see any hope there with new technology and monitoring, monitoring that?
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, technology can help. I also think that there is some um, component of what we call um, intelligent design or structural engineering where you make the right choice, the easy choice. So, making sure that where hand washing stations are placed are in, in the flow as the As a clinician is walking out the door, it's easy for them to access the hand washing station or access the alcohol hand rub or gel that is um used to clean hands. I am just as disappointed as you are in the low numbers that we see in the low percentages of of hand washing when it seems to be something that we're taught when we're in kindergarten <laughs> um and we're and we're taught it when we're we're taught to run the ABCs as we as we wash our hands, but yet we can't seem to do that in in healthcare where patients need us to do that most.
5: The CDC, the World Health Organization, the National Institutes of Health, many experts um, will point to the fact that pharmaceutical companies do not make new um, antibiotics. There seems to be no profit in it. Uh, you're making a, a drug whose sole purpose is that the person doesn't need a drug anymore. Um, so this doesn't seem to be a problem that a free market can solve. Now there was a partnership between public, the public-private partnership, got us the vaccines, as you well know, for CD for our COVID. So is the CDC considering some sort of joint government-private industry partnership? to address this problem uh, similar to the way that we got the COVID-19 vaccines?
2: So there are efforts underway to incentivize drug development. And I would note that CDC doesn't really have the uh, regulatory authority to um, move into that space in terms of developing incentives. However, um, there are um, opportunities on in other federal agencies to do that, uh, including the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Food and Drug Administration. And there there are programs and efforts underway to um, increase reimbursement, so increase payments for um, new agents or new drugs as they are available and they come to market so that they're And there's also um, interest in making sure that drug companies are able to sustain development and have a longer period of um, what they would say is drug exclusivity, meaning that drugs will take longer to, um, to transition to generic formulations, and that allows the companies to recoup some of their development costs. Uh, It is a long process to develop an antibiotic. A lot of the easy ones that were available for development have already been discovered. And so um, a lot of the newer drugs are derivatives of existing drugs. So I, I do think we have to be thinking about what are the options for incentivizing drug development. That's exactly what we need to be doing. We also need Good vaccines to prevent infections because if you can prevent the infection in the first place, then you won't need an antibiotic. So there are lots of of opportunities, and definitely research and development of new drugs, new vaccines, and new diagnostics needs to be part of the solution.
5: Antimicrobial resistance is a huge subject and a huge problem. You know that better than anybody. Is there anything that we haven't discussed here, you and I, that you think is crucial about this topic and you want? People, our listeners, should know about.
2: Well, since we've been talking so much about antibiotics in particular, I want to just mention that in addition to antibiotic resistance, both appropriate and inappropriate antibiotic use can cause adverse drug events. So I think about antibiotic use and improving antibiotic use as a patient safety, you know, effort. So we know that about 20% of hospitalized patients who receive an antibiotic experience an adverse drug event, and the longer a patient is on an antibiotic, the more likely they're going to have an adverse event. And we know that adverse events can range from mild, I would say, side effects like a rash, but they can also be quite severe and involve kidney or liver dysfunction or injury or um, an infection called C. difficile So we know that antibiotics not only are um, crucial for treating bacterial infections, but we must use them carefully in patients so that we don't lead um, or cause unnecessary adverse events. So that's something that I think um, is underappreciated both in the healthcare professional side of the prescribers, among prescribers, as well as patients, is just not understanding um, how frequently we, we see adverse drug events with antibiotics.
5: Dr. Lori Hicks of the CDC, thanks so much for joining us here.
2: Thank you so much, Frank. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today.
0: Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. And for more of our special series on Narcan and the opioid epidemic, tune in to The Top Line this Friday at 6 a.m. Next week here on Podnosis, we're going to discuss climate change. Yep, we're still a healthcare podcast, but healthcare happens to be responsible for 5% of global carbon emissions, which is higher than the aviation industry. And the planet's health is directly connected to our health. Climate change could be one of the greatest threats to public health, so we have to talk about it. So next week, we are doing a special episode all about the link between climate change and healthcare. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis where healthcare is our beat.